hey, good morning, everybody. Happy Sunday to you. Welcome once again to the Edge Church. My name is Steve. I'm one of the pastors here, and really glad to have you joining with us again today as we continue on in our sermon series in the book of Acts that we're calling Empowered, really because the entire book of Acts is just a response to what Jesus had said to his disciples in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, when he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And, and, and all of Acts revolves around this very thing, the Holy Spirit's power coming upon the people of God and those people becoming witnesses of the gospel or the good news of Jesus Christ, really wherever they go, so that ultimately this gospel would be spread throughout the entire world, including to you and I. And so uh, really this is also so that we might be a part of this Holy Spirit gospel movement. Uh, this movement that began more than 2,000 years ago. And so we're going to open God's Word together this morning. We're going to see what God wants to speak to us um, and how the Spirit of God wants to minister uh, to us today. And so I want to just invite you to pray, um, and let's just ask God to speak to us. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this moment. Thanks for today. God, thanks that you're here with us. Lord, we just invite you, God, to speak, to minister, God, as we open your word. Lord, I pray, uh, Father, that you would speak, and God, that we would hear from you. Lord, we need to hear your voice more than any other. And so, God, I pray that, uh, Lord, that I would communicate what it is, God, that you would have for me to speak this morning. God, that you give all of us ears to hear from you and hearts that are just wide open to you, God. Lord, help us to receive every bit of what you have for us today. I just give you this time, Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen. If every Bible, go ahead, open it up to Acts chapter 2. We are uh, going to look spe specifically at verses 14 through 41 together. Now, I'll tell you up front that in my experience of Acts chapter 2, uh, it seems that a lot of people are really familiar with and really tend to like the first part of chapter 2, the first 13 verses. And, and, and a lot of people uh, also like the last part of the chapter, the last five verses or so, but, but they don't seem to know much or spend too much time in this middle part that we come to today. But if, if you remember from this last week, that here in the first part of chapter 2, this is where God, the Holy Spirit, comes upon the disciples while they are waiting and they're praying. And it tells us that this that, that a violent wind blows in the, the, this place and, and what it looks like to them, what like tongues of fire are separated and, and then come to rest upon each one of them. And, and that with this, they begin to speak the Bible says in other tongues or in other languages, so that this assorted group of people that is gathered in Jerusalem from all over the Roman Empire is hearing the disciples declaring the wonders of God, it says, in their own language. And the scriptures tell us that, that, that the people are amazed and perplexed by this, which seems like a pretty normal response to me to a, some kind of supernatural work of God. And it, and it says that they actually ask one another, what does this mean? Because they're interested. 
right? Because they're trying to make sense of what's actually happening. It's like their rational mind just can't put it all together. And at the same time, the scriptures also tell us that there's another group of people who are who are mocking them. They're, they're, they're making fun of them. They're saying, oh, the, these guys have just had way too much wine. And, and so really you have both sides of the same coin here of what happens when God shows up and moves in some kind of supernatural way. Some people will lean in to find out more and others will lean away and just really kind of dismiss it. They'll laugh at it. They'll, they'll, they'll mock it rather than actually contend with what's happening. And so this is where our story today picks up. And what we're going to see now is actually the first spirit-filled Christian sermon recorded in the scriptures, the first gospel presentation about Jesus after his death and resurrection. As a result, it will tell us that some 3,000 people in this crowd come to know Christ because of it. So, so, so clearly there's some things in here for us to know and to learn and to walk in when it comes to the gospel. So let's look at this. Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 14. It says this. It says, Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you, this thing that's happening. He says, listen carefully to what I say. Now, first off, remember that this is Peter, the same guy who just a few weeks, a handful of weeks earlier, had denied Jesus three times out of fear, right? He denied even knowing Jesus. And now here he is standing up to boldly proclaim him to a crowd as he's filled by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul writes in 2 Timothy 1, 7 and 8, he says, For the Spirit God gave us does not make us fearful and timid, he says, but gives us power love, and self-discipline. So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. This is one of the works of the Holy Spirit in our lives, empowering us to overcome fear and cowardice to proclaim Jesus with a holy boldness. This is what's happening with Peter. Now, also notice here that, that Peter admonishes the crowd to pay careful attention, to listen carefully to his Words. Sometimes I think uh, that, that we put all the onus of a message on the speaker and miss the responsibility that we have as the hearer. But, but it really it requires both. So it's important then that not only do we ask God to give us the words to say, but also that we ask God to give us ears to hear so that we don't miss what he wants to say through us or to us. Peter says, listen carefully. Verse 15, he says, he says, these people are not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning, he says. No, he says, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. I love this. Peter's like, hey, hey, everybody, listen, what you're witnessing right now, the wonders of God being proclaimed in your own language, this is not like the work of some drunk people, okay? It's not even lunchtime, right? Like, we didn't start today with some mimosas, okay? He's like, no, no, well, you're actually in this nexus of history where what is happening in front of you front of you is really something that was foretold hundreds of years ago through the prophet Joel, and you're now witnessing its fulfillment. So, so, so what did Joel say? Well, Peter tells us, he quotes from Joel chapter 2 and verse 17. He says, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Which people? He says, your sons and daughters will prophesy, your young men will see visions, your old men will dream dreams, even on my servants. He says, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. 
So, so Joel has foretold of this moment where the Spirit of God be poured out on all people, not just on like the Old Testament prophets bringing some divine message from God, and, and not just on the priests and, or the rabbis of that day. This isn't some intermittent spirit, right, that was poured out on some people at some time for some specific task. This is a Spirit of God for all people, for males and for females, he says, for young and for old, even for servants, Peter says. So that it doesn't matter your position, doesn't matter your status or your gender or race or education. There are no qualifiers to this spirit apart from Christ. The spirit of God is poured out to all. And this, Peter's telling them, this is what you're seeing and experiencing right now with us. He continues, verse 19, he says, I will show you wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. So all this work of the Spirit and signs and wonders, all of that's going to happen, he says, before the day of the Lord. So we should ask then, what is the day of the Lord? Because for them, honestly, they would have understood this very thing. This would have hit their ears differently than it hits ours. So, so, so to help us understand what he's saying, let's go back to Joel chapter 2 and look at the, some verses there starting in verse 1. So, so in Joel chapter 2 verse 1, it starts by saying, Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sound the alarm on my holy hill. Let all who live in the land tremble for the day of the Lord is coming. Here it is. It is close at hand, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness, like dawn spreading across the mountains. A large and mighty army comes, such as never was in ancient times, nor ever will be in ages to come. Before them, fire devours. Behind them, a flame blazes. Before them, the land is like the Garden of Eden. Behind them, a desert waste. Nothing escapes them. So, so, so here you have this picture. Right, right, of this large and mighty army that is coming, right? And, and nothing, it says, and no one is going to be able to escape from them. That, that sounds a little bit terrifying, right? Now, now look at verse 10. It says, Before them the earth shakes, the heavens tremble, the sun and moon are darkened, and the stars no longer shine. Now look at this, verse 11. The Lord thunders at the head of whose army? His army. Wait a minute, I thought, I thought Israel was God's army. No, 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 his army, God's army is coming to deal with Israel. This is God's heavenly army coming to bring his judgment upon them. And it says his forces are beyond number and mighty is the army that obeys his command. The day of the Lord is great. It is dreadful. Who can endure it? And the answer is simply this, nobody. No one can. Here's what Peter is telling this crowd. He's saying that everything you all are witnessing in this present moment is a sign. It is a signal to you that the day of the Lord is at hand and that the day of the Lord includes his judgment for sin and wickedness and rebellion. Now, 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 that's not something that people want to hear, and really it's not a popular thing to say either, especially in our day. God isn't going to judge us, right? God's just going to love us. I mean, who is it that proclaims and talks about the judgment of God, right? Like crazy street preachers, right? Like those billboard-toting fundamentalists, 
right? Like God's judgment is, uh, we often think is really just some silly, outdated religious scare tactic that's been passed down from like power-hungry patriarchal clergy, right? Like trying to maintain some control and oppression over people. That's what we're told today, right? That's how we tend to think. But Jesus himself, himself, he tells us throughout the Gospel of John that, that he has been given all authority from the Father to judge. He actually says of himself in John 9, 39, he says, listen, for judgment, I came into this world. The judgment of God isn't something man puts on God to scare people, but something God declares about himself for us to respond to. And, and so Peter is warning them. He's saying, listen, the judgment of the Lord is coming. When? When the day of the Lord comes. And guess what? He's telling them, what you are witnessing right now with the Spirit being poured out is a sign that this judgment's coming and no one is exempt. Now, 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 that would seem like really bad news if it weren't for verse 21, where Peter gives some good news, where he says, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So God will judge, that's true. He will hold each person accountable, but God in his love and his goodness and his mercy, God also makes deliverance available. He, he offers a way of escape to all deserving of his judgment so that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And that, that, that's really the gospel put broadly. The, the, the question then would still remain for them, well, who is this Lord and what does it mean to call upon his name? See, see up to this point, Peter's been pretty generic, right? Like he's been linking what is happening with the pouring out of the Spirit amongst the disciples to Joel's prophecy from Joel chapter 2 about God's judgment and God's salvation. But now he's going to get really specific with them. So starting in verse 22, he says, this, he says fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, listen to this, you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will also rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a, a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, listen, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Now, that's a mouthful, right? Like Peter says a lot here, but to summarize what, what he's doing, he, he's authenticating for them the reality of who Jesus is by his life, death, and resurrection according to the scriptures and the apostles' own witness. He's saying, listen, 
Consider for yourselves the miracles of Jesus that many of you know about. Many of you have even witnessed and experienced. Consider the prophetic words of King David about the coming Messiah that were fulfilled in Jesus. Consider the death and resurrection of Jesus. We have seen him. We have talked to him. We have eaten with him. We have touched him. Jesus lives and consider what you are experiencing and seeing and hearing right now, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that Joel had prophesied about and Jesus said would come after he ascended. God made this Jesus, Peter said, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. That word Messiah literally means deliverer or savior. So, so who is this Lord? He is our deliverer. It's Jesus, right? Jesus is the Savior. Remember here as well, though, that that these are Jews that Peter is speaking to, that these are the chosen people of God. And so so when Peter's telling them about the coming judgment of God, naturally they're thinking, this is not for us. Like, like this is for other people. Like, we're God's people, right? And, and so Peter makes sure to tell them not just once, but twice in both verses 23 and 36 so that they don't miss it. He says to them, listen, you killed Jesus. You crucified him. You are responsible. Now, now this isn't the most seeker-friendly gospel presentation, is it, right? But, but listen, the gospel doesn't only tell us the truth about who Jesus is. The gospel also tells us the truth about who we are, too. Think about this, because this is important, and, and this brings actually us into the story. There are thousands of people in this crowd, right, who've gathered from all over the Roman Empire. So, so certainly not everyone in this crowd that Peter is addressing is actually responsible for the death of Jesus physically or actively. In fact, it's more likely that a number of them were not even there when he died. And yet this doesn't seem to bother Peter at all, does it? So how can he say to this crowd that all of you killed Jesus. Here's why. Because Peter knows that regardless of whether or not they helped or were there or gave approval or were indifferent or knew nothing about it, that it was our sin that put Jesus on the cross. And so all of them, like all of us, are guilty. We're, we're all responsible. Peter will later write in 1 Peter 2.24 that he himself, talking about Jesus, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. 1 Corinthians 15.3 tells us plainly that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And so listen, no one is exempt from this. And how do I know that? Well, Romans 3.23 tells us, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That, that, that word all, right, all have sinned, that word all, look in the lexicons, look, at, look in the original Greek, it still means all, right? All have sinned, you, me, 
everyone, everywhere, for all time. And, and this is like really important for us to get and grasp because this is ground level for all of this. This puts all of us onto the same boat with the same need, right? So this means if you if you have led just the most hedonistic, debaucherous, sinful, and wicked life, right? Like, like, like or, or, or if you've lived what looks like to many people a really good moral life, maybe even you grew up in church, right? Like, like this is ground level for all of us. You have still fallen short of the glory of God. No one is exempt. We're all guilty before God. All have sinned. We're all responsible for Jesus being put on that cross. I, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie The Passion of the Christ that Mel Gibson had made or not, but, but, but the only part in that film that he's actually in, um, you, you don't actually see him, you just see his hands. And it's the scene where you see the hands holding the hammer that's pounding the nails into Jesus' hands upon the cross. That was the only part that Mel wanted to partake of and be in because he said, I too am responsible for this. How, how could he say that? 2000, more than 2,000 years later, how could he say that? He wasn't even there. He could say that because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Because all of us, like Isaiah 53, 6 says, are like sheep who have gone astray, who go our own way, living by our own standards, on our own terms, for our own glory, as though we are God, and we all fall short. It's because of sin, Scripture tells us that Christ was crucified, so it is our sin, each of ours, that put Jesus on the cross. We're all guilty. We're all responsible. See, the message of the gospel isn't that you're perfect just the way that you are. That would be a lie. And really, I think if we're honest, all of us know that to be true. Praise God that he loves us enough to tell us the truth about us. And the truth is that we're sinful. The truth is that your sin has broken you. You're, the truth is that that sin has broken your relationship with God. The truth is that that sin has broken your relationship with others and it's broken the world that God has made. And there is nothing that you can do in and of yourself to fix yourself and to change your condition. You are guilty of wickedness and sinfulness be, be, before a perfectly holy God who is coming with judgment for all, not because he's unjust, but because he is just. And we are all deserving, for all have sinned, including you and me. And, and Peter tells them and us, though, that that's not the end. He says, tells us that deliverance for us is available, right? Because whoever calls on the name of of the Lord will be saved. What an incredible offer of God's grace. How amazing is it that the one that we have sinned against comes to die in our place for our sin so that through him we might be delivered and rescued from it. That's love. That's not just good news. That's like the most amazing news that could ever be. And so how is it then that they respond to this good news? Verse 37 tells us, it says, When the people heard this, it says they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? You see what happens here? P Peter shares with them the gospel. This is who Jesus is. This is what you have done. And this is what Christ has done for you. And the gift that he offers to you, the gift of his salvation and their guilt over what they've done and the offer of God's grace, the Bible says, cuts them to the heart. 
meaning that they were truly convicted of their sin and convinced that Jesus was their salvation. And so they say, what should we do? What do we do now? How should we respond? Listen, the gospel always demands a response. The gospel says something and the gospel does something. The gospel isn't just words, okay? The gospel is something we receive and we experience and it compels us to respond with our very lives. Notice here that Peter's response to their question, what shall we do, isn't, nah, you're good, right? It isn't like, no, don't, you don't have to do anything, right? It's just enough that you, that you know about Jesus and, and what he did for you, right? Because it isn't enough just to know what the gospel is. You must do something about it. You must personally respond to the gospel. And really to not respond is a response in itself. So, so, so what is it that Peter tells them to do? Verse 38. It says, Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. P Peter says, This is how you respond to that conviction in your heart regarding your sin and what Jesus has done for you. He says, You repent. He, re repentance is an evidence of faith. And, and it means turning away from sin and self and turning to Jesus as Lord and Savior. This isn't like some prayer that you pray and then you just go about your business. You just go on your way doing you, right? Like, like this is a yielding. This is a turning from all that you are to him and all that he is. And this is really something that you see throughout the scriptures, even in the Old Testament. Isaiah 55 or 6 and 7, the prophet says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them and to our God, for he will freely pardon. Forsake your way, he says, and turn to the Lord and go on his way from heart to head to hands. That's Repentance, right? It's not repentance because I'm convicted of sin or that I know that it's wrong or I feel really bad about it. That's not repentance. It's not repentance because I think about what I ought to do differently, right? Or, or how I should turn from the sin while I just keep going my own way. That's not repentance. Remember the story of the prodigal son that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 15, where this son, right, he goes to his father and he demands his inheritance. Basically, he's like, listen, dad, I don't need you. I don't, I don't want you. I'm better off without you, right? I'm good on my own. So he takes his money, he takes off, he lives this crazy, lavish, wild lifestyle. And in the end, he loses it all, right? Loses his money, loses all his friends, has nothing to the point where he is now eating with pigs. And then finally, Luke Chapter 15, verse 17 tells us that he has this moment in this pig pen. It says, and when he came to his senses, you know what that is? That's when he was cut to the heart. He said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. He says, I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. He says, so he got up and he went to his father. So he doesn't just get cut to the heart. 
right? And, and he doesn't just think about what he ought to do. He doesn't just think about what is available to him with his father. He gets up, the scripture says, and he goes back. He returns to the father. And it says, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. That's what repentance looks like. It, it's not cheap, okay? It's not puffed up or proud or selfish. It is humble and surrendered. And the beautiful and amazing thing about God is that God is running after you. God is coming to you and longing for you to come to him, not so that he can condemn you, but to love you. Repent, Peter says. And he also says, listen, be baptized. Why baptism, right? Like, like isn't baptism just some kind of religious ritual, right? Isn't it just a work? I, I thought Ephesians 2 tells us that it's by grace that we're saved through faith and, and not of ourselves, that this is a gift from God. Yeah, it absolutely does say that. So Peter here isn't telling us that, that being baptized saves you, okay? He's saying that being baptized is an act of your repentance, that, that it's a response to your faith in Jesus and your commitment to him. It is this public declaration so that everyone can see and know that we follow Jesus and are not ashamed to be identified with him. So, so, so as we go down into the water, we are declaring that we have been crucified with Christ, that, that our sin is buried with him in his death. And, and as we're raised up out of the water, we declare that we too have been raised to new life in Christ so that we are now dead to sin but alive to Christ. We, we, we aren't baptized to be saved, okay? We're baptized because we have been. And as a result, Peter then proclaims God's promise that, that they will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. When we repent and trust in Christ, we not only receive the gift of his grace, Right, for our sin, but, but also the gift of the Holy Spirit who enables and empowers us with his presence and power uh, to walk daily with Jesus and, and also who is the deposit, Scripture says, of our eternal inheritance with God forever. So what happens? Verse 40 and 41 tells us, as with many other words he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Here's what happens. Peter proclaims Jesus boldly. The Holy Spirit does his work inwardly, and the church of God grows outrageously. That, that's the power of the gospel. My, my prayer for all of you today is that you will know this gospel that, that, that you will receive this gospel, that you will continually be changed by this gospel, and that you will proclaim this gospel with your words and with your life. And, and if you've never received this gospel, I invite you today, just as Peter did, right, to take God at his word, to turn from sin and turn to Jesus, to receive his grace and his salvation because his promise is for you, for whoever calls upon the name of the Lord of Jesus will be saved. Let's pray. Father, thanks for today. God, thanks for your word. 
God, thank you for the, the witness, Lord, that we get to hear about from your apostles here in Acts chapter two, Lord, and be reminded, Lord, of the amazing gift of salvation that you offer us in Jesus. God, I pray that the good news of the gospel would stir in every single heart today. God, for those of us who, who, who say that we follow you, Lord Jesus, that, that, that the gospel would continue to produce a good fruit in our lives, Lord, that, that there would be a holy boldness within us to proclaim you wherever you send us. And God, for those who have not yet received you, Lord, that, that you would draw them today. Holy Spirit, that you would bring about that sweet conviction over our sin. Lord, in the reality of what you have done for us on the cross, Lord, that we can receive that with hands open, your grace and your salvation. God, thanks for your love and for your goodness. Lord, thank you that like the father and the prodigal, Lord, that you run to us, run after us. God, you invite us to yourself. God, may we say yes to you today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.